Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Stripping down science. The Naked Scientists. Hello, welcome to this week's edition of The Naked Scientist with me, Chris Smith, and with Helen Scales. Hi, Helen. Hi, Chris. Now, this week, CO2 and climate change. Is it a lot of hot air, or are there some serious consequences for the planet in store? Well, we'll be looking at a very serious situation for the oceans coming up shortly. Also, researchers have taken a big step forward towards developing a a vaccine to stop malaria, and that might come in handy here in the UK if climate change does make us warm up much more. And also, researchers can now track cells as they move around the body, which can give us new insights into how cancers spread and how the immune system fights disease. We'll be finding out about that and more in this week's show. Helen. Yeah, also this week we're exploring the science of flight. We'll be hearing from Oxford University researcher Jenny Goodman how an invention she's working on could see you flying from London all the way to Sydney in just a couple of hours. Plus, we'll also be talking to Graham Taylor, who's also from Oxford, who will be introducing us to the flight simulator he's built for insects and talking about how he straps backpacks on birds to work out how they manoeuvre aloft. Sounds fantastic. All that's on the way. But if you're in the mood to win something, we've got the most incredible flight-related prize for you this week, and it's all thanks to the London Science Museum. It's a remote-controlled aeroplane. Apparently it's good to work for distances of up to 300 feet away from you, and they say it's allegedly indestructible. To win it, can you answer this question? What did the Montgolfier brothers invent? The Naked Scientist podcast, powered by UK Fast, the UK's best hosting provider, on the web at ukfast.net. Now, it's pretty unusual that we start in the way I'm going to start, because we normally start with a roundup of the news, but I've got two emails this week which I'd like to share with you. The first one was sent in by Simon, who's in Burwell, and he says, first of all, many thanks for a great show. Uh, I'd like to ask something about climate change. I'm a great believer in trying to alleviate climate change, and I even have solar water heating fitted to my house. But I've recently viewed the programme on Channel 4 called The the Great Global Warming Swindle. The main thrust of the programme was that allegedly, although scientific studies show that there is a close relationship between rising CO2 in the atmosphere and an increase in planetary temperature, the relationship is that the planet warms first and then the CO2 rises. This could be accounted for then by the increase in plants and animals. Therefore, the programme alleges that CO2 that man creates is not only insignificant compared to volcanic emissions, animal emissions and sea emissions, but CO2 doesn't appear to cause any increases in planetary temperature anyway. And they blame that on the activity of the sun. Now I don't really know what to think. Well, that's Simon. I've also got an email here from Stephen who writes about Al Gore. And of course, Al Gore's had a documentary called The Inconvenient Truth. He says, Hi Chris, for the past few years I've basically taken it for granted that global warming's happening. After doing a a lot more reading recently and talking to someone who's really interested in this and done a lot of research, I'm now unsure. I feel that humanity pumping CO2 and other greenhouse gases into the atmosphere must be doing damage, but is it as bad as it's feared? Well, 
The important thing here is that both of these emails focus on one aspect of CO2, and that's the impact that we think it might have on Earth's temperatures. But that's not the whole story necessarily, because CO2 could also be having dire consequences for our not just our atmosphere, but for our oceans. And someone who's got evidence of that and is about to publish an important paper on it in the near future is Frederick Gazoo. Hi, Frederick. Hi, Chris. Thank you for joining us. Tell us about your research. Um, what we did is to, tr- to, um, to try to, uh, to estimate the impact of increase of CO2 in the ocean on the calcification uh, of uh, shellfish, of mollusks. Calcification of mollusks is the growth of the shells. So, in other words, things like mussels, oysters, anything that's got exactly. a shell. Well, we did our experiments on mussels and oysters, which are the most important in terms of aquaculture. So it has an economical impact. So that's why we choose these, these two species. So why should CO2 in the air have anything to do with what's going on in the sea? Well, what you have to know is that uh, the CO2 which is released by uh, human uh, activities, such as the consumption of petrol, gas, coal, one-third of this CO2 is pumped by the ocean. If you pump CO2 in the ocean, you will decrease its pH. Because you so will... in other words, the sea is soaking up carbon dioxide that we've put into the air. Exactly. One third is taken up by, by the ocean. That's what we estimated. So if you, if you have more CO2 in the ocean, you will have a, a stronger acidity of the ocean. And the problem is that this acidity can threaten organisms which uh, uh, grow uh, skeletons or shells made of calcium carbonate. This is the same stuff that builds up as limescale in the kettle and we add acid to remove it. Yeah, exactly. Uh, The thing is, the the CO2 in the ocean has three uh, different species. Uh, The CO2 by itself, but also bicarbonate and carbonate. If you uh, decrease the pH, you will shift the equilibrium between these three species toward uh, more CO2 and less carbonate ions. And uh, the thing is, it's, it's all very well saying that, Frederick, but how much CO2 does it take to make a big difference to the ocean? Have we got any evidence that the CO2 that we make does make a difference to the ocean, and how are you proving that it actually makes a difference in the long run to animals in the ocean? Well, we, we first have evidence that in some places on Earth, uh, in the ocean, we, have, uh, we had a decrease of, P, of the, the oceanic pH in the last decades. That's a fact. Uh, the so the sea is, genuinely has got more acidic in recent years? They are more acidic. They are not acid, of course. Huh? They are still basic. But they are more, uh, the pH is lower, so they are more acidic, yes. And, and how do you know this has an impact on, on animals? Well, the thing is, it's, it's just a chemical, uh, chemical reaction. Uh, if you want to build uh, a calcium carbonate uh, shells or skeletons, you need carbonate ions. And if you uh, decrease the pH, you will decrease the concentrations of carbonate ions. So that's a chemical fact. The thing is, uh, now we, we're thinking that some organisms are able to adapt, to acclimatize to the new environment. And uh, that's now what, what I'm going to do in the next month, is to try to see if these organisms can adapt themselves. What experiment did you do to, to prove that there was a problem in the first place? I incubated in, uh, in, uh, in uh, mesocosms, in chambers, in aquarium, let's say, uh, two populations of, uh, of uh, mussels and oysters. Uh, one population of, uh, of mussel was incubated with a CO2 concentration, which is what we have now. And uh, another population was incubated with, uh, with uh, increased uh, CO2 concentrations in the water. And what I did is to measure 
the rate of production of their shells. And I saw that uh, if you increase the CO2, you decrease the rate of shell formation. Now, when you say you incubated them with increased CO2, mm-hmm. how much increase? Is it within the realms of what we expect to see in the atmosphere within, say, the next 50 yes. or 100 years? Yes, I went further than this, this limit, but I covered the range which is expected in the, one, uh, in the next 100 years. Now, obviously, the, the problem won't be confined just to shellfish. So what other animals might be affected? A lot of different animals. For instance, the most, the most uh, famous ones, the coral reefs, are made of calcium carbonate. Also, we have uh, really small planktonic organisms that we call pteropods. Uh, you have also coccolithophorids, which are really small uh, algae, uh, planktonic algae in the ocean. And also you have uh, species, like, species like sea urchins, for instance. And we have evidence for several of these species that if we increase the CO2 of the ocean, we will, uh, let's say, threaten, we will decrease their uh, ability to, uh, to produce their skeletons of their shells. So irrespective of what CO2 actually does to the weather or to the temperature of the Earth, it will definitely have this effect on the oceans mm. and therefore there could be quite serious repercussions. That's what we think and that's what first experiments showed already. But now what we have to do, as I told you earlier, is to see if these different organisms are able to uh, acclimatize first or also uh, genetically adapt to, to an increased CO2. And that's something which will be done in the next years, but we cannot really answer this question now. Frederick, thank you very much. You're welcome. Quite sobering words from Frederick Gazo, who's at the Netherlands Institute of Ecology. So, in other words, climate change isn't, and CO2 release isn't just confined to warming up the Earth. It actually has quite serious repercussions for what you work on, Helen, which is the world's oceans. That's right, yes, indeed. There's a lot of things to think about, and I think the picture is certainly not that clear yet, but, um, yes, more things to consider. Anyway, um, on a slightly perhaps lighter note, um, there's been some new research out this week which hints at a ray of hope for the battle against malaria because it seems that an answer might be with us in the rather simple form of mosquito spit. Now, every year, between somewhere around 3 million people die of malaria. This is a really big problem for us. And the search for an effective vaccine against this deadly disease is a huge challenge facing medical researchers today. Um, but scientists already have discovered that the saliva of sand flies, which um, can protect against another insect-borne disease called leishmaniasis. It's a skin condition. It's, uh, in fact, lots of uh, the soldiers coming back from Iraq, apparently, are catching this, this condition um, from the desert. Um, but now we think, according to a study by Mary-Ann McDowell and her team at the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases in Maryland in the US, they've shown that mice that have been pre-exposed to mosquitoes that haven't got malaria have better protection later on if they are exposed to infected mosquitoes. So mice with this uninfected mosquito saliva in their blood because they've been bitten um, by these these, uh, non-malarial mosquitoes, when they're then put in contact with mosquitoes that do have malaria, it seems that this saliva in their blood has has triggered an immune response um, basically by increasing the production of these chemicals called cytokines, which are mostly associated with immune cells called T-helper-1 cells. Um, It's really, really early days because we're we're a really long way off seeing a new anti-malaria vaccine for people based on mosquito spit. But uh, McDowell and her team are already on to the next step in this whole process and they're hunting for the particular protein that's responsible for this immune response in mice. And then they're going to have to see if it actually works in people as well. But it's an interesting idea that that it might help us, as I say, combat this really dreadful disease. Do you know why I'm a bit sceptical about that, though? Which is that if if you go to an area where malaria is endemic and there's a big problem, bits of Africa, if you look at how many mosquitoes are actually carrying malaria, 
it's really small. I was quite surprised. About 5%. So one mosquito in 20, which means that lots and lots of people will be being bitten by mosquitoes that are not carrying malaria. So you would have thought that this would have a sort of vaccination well, actually, effect like the does. one you outlined. It does a little bit. I mean, this is something that's going to be part of this study is that people who are exposed to, to lots of bites um, from mosquitoes and actually do have some level of protection from it. We thought possibly in the past this was something to do with being exposed to small amounts of the disease um, and b- building up an immunity over time. But this could actually be almost the explanation for that. So people are still dying from malaria but there's a greater resistance amongst people who are endemic to malarial regions and have just more mosquito bites in general because we don't get bitten very much so we're probably not very immune here in the um, in England and in America. So Although we could be if we end up warmer. Well this, that's another thing to think about. Malaria yeah. comes home yes, to roost here. Could be. It's certainly a serious problem with 300 million infections every year and 3 it's million deaths. Huge. So no, it's, it's huge. It's something we need some progress on pretty rapidly. Now, a very interesting piece of research published in the journal Nature Biotechnology this week by researchers from the Johns Hopkins uh, Institute in Baltimore in the US. They've found a way to track cells as they move in real time around the body. This is amazing because up until now, the only way we've been able to see where cells go in, in the body has been to label cells with some kind of dye or some other product that we can pick up later and then literally take bits of the body away or cut the bodies of, say, experimental animals up to see where these, these cells have gone. would be much more informative, though, if you could follow them as they moved around the body in real time because then you could see, for instance, how cancers spread or how the immune system works. And that's what a group of researchers led by Asaf Gilad have now done because they've used magnetic resonance imaging. This is the very powerful magnets that people use to get very in, 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 impressive pictures of how the brain sort of is structured inside the body, totally non-invasively. Now, the way this works is that when you put someone in an MRI scanner, it uses a very powerful magnet, and this causes all the hydrogen atoms in the body, largely in the water in the body, to all line up with the magnetic field. And then you zap the person in the scanner with a, a brief pulse of radio waves, and this knocks some of those aligned hydrogens off kilter, and then they flip back to line up with the magnetic field again and when they do so they give out another radio signal that the scanner can pick up and that's how it pieces together what you look like on the inside so what these researchers have done is to build something called a reporter gene it's a short piece of dna that makes an artificial protein in cells and this protein is very rich in a certain kind of amino acid building block called lysine that's got lots and lots of hydrogen in it so this makes these cells glow like a beacon in the body when when you put these this gene into into certain cells and this means the scanner can see them and what they're able to do at the moment just as proof of principle is to track artificially injected tumor cells in animal brains but one day you'll be able to make various versions of this reporter gene that will mean the scanner can synchronously sort of distinguish between different cells and different cell populations moving in different ways and you'll be able to track them as they move around the body the naked scientists supported by the welcome trust it's The Naked Scientists with Chris and Helen. And uh, if you want to have a go at this week's Kitchen Science, which is coming up now, then you're going to need to get hold of a toaster, a big bit of cardboard, which you can roll up into a tube, a bit like a chef's hat, and you need one of the cheapest, nastiest, thinnest plastic bin liners that you can find. What did we want you to do with it? Well, last Saturday at the Cambridge Science Festival, Dave Ansell and Ben Valsler went along to the zoology department where Tom and Marco were helping them to set it all up. For Kitchen Science this week, we're here at the Cambridge Science Festival. I'm here with Dave and with Tom and Marco, and we're going to learn about what happens when you heat air up. So, Dave, what's going to happen? Well, we use a toaster to expand air and see what happens to a bin bag full of it. So what do you think will happen to a bin bag full of air with a toaster? Uh, Maybe the air will heat up, maybe. And what do you think will happen when the air heats up? 
it might melt the plastic bag a bit. So Dave, are we doing anything to stop the plastic bag melting? Well, for, but basically what you want for this, you want to take a toaster, perfectly okay. normal household toaster, and then what we're going to do is we're going to fill a bin bag. You want as cheap, light bin bag as you can find, and you want to fill it with hot air from the toaster. Now, if you just do it over the top of a toaster, you might burn your fingers, or you might get the bag stuck to the toaster and make a horrible smell and make your toaster smell of hot plastic forevermore. So what you want to do is get a piece of cardboard, turn it into a tube, and put it over the top of the toaster. So could you do that for me? Tom is now expertly fitting the protective card around the top of the toaster, so it looks a bit like the toaster's wearing a cardboard top hat. And remember, if you do do this at home, you need to make sure you keep everything safe because you don't want burning plastic on your toaster, not least because you won't be able to make very good toast after that, will you? And Dave, what setting is the toaster on? I probably want the toaster on full power, and you want the cardboard tube to be about as long as your bin bag, or slightly longer. So, shall we put the bin bag over the card and see what happens? Yeah, OK, so we'll take this economy bin bag and put it over the top of the toaster, if you can do that. And the bin bag fits nicely over the cardboard tube, well designed, Dave. So, if you think you know what's going to happen to the bin bag on top of the toaster, then please call into the Naked Scientist. We'll be back later to let you know what really happens. Thank you, guys. So, just in case you missed that, you need to get a very big piece of cardboard, you roll it up into a tube and put it on top of your toaster, and then you open the plastic bag, put it loosely over the top of the tube, switch the toaster on, and watch what happens. Now, once you've got the result, give us a call 08459 email chris at nakedscientist.com, or text in 07786 if you are the first through with the correct findings and the correct interpretation, you could get into the hat to win this fantastic remote control plane that we've got from the Science Museum. And as a word of caution, toasters do get hot, so make sure you've emptied out the crumbs from the bottom of the toaster and don't burn yourself, please. Yes, definitely. Keep safety in mind at all times. Right, I've got an email here from Dr Ang- Angus Campbell, another doctor listening to us doctors, and he has a question. He says, um, in India, curry is widely consumed as a flavourant, as we all know. We all enjoy a good curry. Um, but can curry reduce enteric parasite burden, so the bugs that are in our stomachs? Since, as he says and puts it rather nicely, it appears to increase bowel excretion and movement. Chris, I think this is you've one been for to, you. Well, you've been to all these fabulous places on Earth in your course of your marine studies. That's right, do, yeah. do you you end up with doses no, of things like Montezuma's I'm Revenge actually, and Deli Belly and stuff. I'm actually really lucky. I sort of, I tend to not at all, just a little bit, but nothing very bad. I, mean, I haven't been to India, which is where they say Deli Belly comes from, you <laughs> well, know. So, enough, yeah. so no once or twice, but you know, I, I just, you know, it's fine really. Um, and I've never actually tried eating curry as a to cure off, for right? that. Because <laughs> most people associate vaccine. it with the cause rather than the cure. There, yes. there was a bit of research done. In 2004, I remember this paper coming out, and people were looking at uh, coriander, cilantro. Oh, I love coriander. The stuff that you use to perk up a curry. Mm. And they managed to find a molecule in there called dodecanal. And this is a, a hydrocarbon. It's got 12 carbons li- all linked together with hydrogens hanging off of each of the carbons and, and an oxygen at the end of this carbon chain. They found that it's very good at punching holes in the membrane of bugs like salmonella. So it works a bit like a detergent because it's got this long oily chain which it sticks into the membrane of the bacterium and then this water-loving bit at the other end which helps to open up or prise open a hole in the bug's wall and this means the bug then has a massive gaping hole in in its cell and this causes the contents to leach out and the bug dies. Now, how much coriander would you need to eat to get that effect? Well, when they got an amount of coriander greater than the amount of curry that you would eat, that you were flavouring with it, then you could get enough of this dodecanal to have approximately the same effect as the um, uh, antibiotic gentamicin. 
which is, oh, is right. what you're going to so, okay. so it can work, but probably not at the concentrations no. that we're seeing. I mean, in fact, the thing I hear is that actually curry was almost invented to cover up the nasty flavour of slightly off meat. Um, and uh, so therefore you might, you know, well be dodgy if you eat lots of curries made of, you know... Yeah, I heard that too. And, and that's, why, that's why you make the food taste as exactly. interesting with chilli yeah, and spices, yeah. because the meat might not be so yeah. savoury, because, of course... It's been in the warm weather much harder to have stored. Well, absolutely, yeah. Got a question here from uh, Una McFarlane, who is from Croydon in South London. What do you know about breasts, Helen? <laughs> it's not, I'm not very funny. It's, it's because she says, I'm currently studying all the sciences and maths AS level with a view to applying to veterinary science at university. I love listening to your podcast while clearing out the chickens and raptors and my voluntary work, but I've got a burning question for you. If female mammals have mammary glands, then why do male mammals also have similar mammary glands um, so do, do, all mam- do all males have these mammary glands um, when they d- and why do they have them if they don't do anything? Right, well it's a kind of evolutionary thing isn't it? I don't know precisely the, the roots in which, should we call them nipples? I think that's what we're talking about isn't it? Um, and uh, that they sort of are formed similarly in male and female in as, you know, as an embryo in the uterus um, but that there isn't necessarily a function there for the male nipples and that they're just... Uh, sort of adornments, if you like, with no particular yeah, function. Because when you look at how we develop in utero, for a certain period of time, up until quite a, quite a significant gap, a few, several weeks into pregnancy, actually male and female babies look absolutely identical. And it's only subsequently that then you start to, under the power of these hormones pumped out, whether you're male or female, you actually start to change and, and alter your anatomy. But because you develop a lot of these surface structures and appearances when you're very early on in development... You've got them, whether you need them or not. There is actually one example I managed to find of a mammal, which is a male, and uses its breasts to, to potentially breastfeed. They do actually lactate, produce milk. And that's a Dayak fruit bat, and they live in Indonesia. And the male does produce small amounts of milk, only about a tenth of the amount the female does. So people don't actually know whether it makes a, a very big contribution to rearing of the young, but nonetheless... Yeah, interesting. I mean, you can always mess around a bit with sex roles in animals. They could do different things, but, uh, you know, like... Uh, but generally it is the males that uh, don't look after the young so much and it's the females that do and have have mammary glands to produce milk and The female male seahorses though oh, though they're not yes, mammals obviously right. but that's they do rear example. the young don't they, they? they they're the only actually the only animal that we know of that truly gets pregnant they just they have a proper you know womb like structure that they keep the babies in it's rather cute so una mcfarlane the answer is it's all down to genetics and embryology how you develop you develop them before you actually discover that you don't need them but there are some mammals and these day bats are the one example that do potentially use them because the males lactate quick reminder of what's coming up on the naked scientists with dr helen and me dr chris graham taylor and jenny goodman are coming in shortly they're going to talk about the science of flight in various capacities if you've got any questions for them, 08459 And don't forget our teaser, what, uh, teaser, which let me remind you of that, which is what did the Montgolfier brothers invent? And up for grabs is a wonderful, indestructible, we're told, remote-controlled aeroplane, which has been donated by the Science Museum down in London. That's right. Give us a phone call, 08459 But now it's time to hop over the ocean to hear from Bob and Chelsea this week, which I'm very much looking forward to, hearing the music of the ocean, the yes, wonderful stuff, including scientists who listen to whale communication and how the Blue Danube is helping the visually impaired to see magic, the magic of aquariums. This week for the Naked Scientists, while you've been busy with flight, we've been diving under the water. I'm going to talk about public aquariums and how scientists are making them accessible to people who can't see. But first, Chelsea is going to talk about oceanographers who are listening to the world's largest animals. (coughs) 
The fascinating songs of humpback whales are familiar to scientists and the public, but those of blue whales, the largest animals on Earth, are much less known. Now, scientists from Scripps Oceanography in California have linked these endangered whale sounds to their behaviors by tagging them with suction cup recorders. Team leader Aaron Olson sped up this one sound made by feeding whales to make it easier for us to hear. So they'll be feeding, and then they talk a little bit. It's kind of like eating at a diner where you chat a little bit, and then you go back to eating for a while, and then you chat a little bit. Since sound travels vast distances in water, thanks to this research, scientists will be able to learn more about blue whales around the world just by eavesdropping. Thanks, Chelsea. If this version of the Blue Danube seems strange, it's because it's being played by fish. It's part of a new project to make public aquariums more accessible to the blind. Psychologist Bruce Walker of Georgia Tech says his team assigned each fish in a virtual demo to a different instrument in the song. The instruments get louder and pan right or left as the fish move around the tank. Walker says it can convey where the fish are and a whole lot more. We want to make sure that the ooh and the ah, the affective experience that、uh, a sighted person has when they stand in front of a, a massive wall of glass and see the the movements of the the, the various fish behind is communicated、uh, to our visually impaired visitors. So choosing the right kind of music, choosing the right instruments or the right theme of music. Uh, is is crucial to sharing that emotional、uh, component of of the experience. Besides well-known pieces of music, Walker's team is experimenting with other sounds, including more abstract tones and rhythms. Ultimately, they'd like to represent not only where the fish are, but also how fast they're moving and what activities they're doing. The team also hopes that the audio-enhanced aquariums will add to the experiences of sighted people. Thanks, Bob. Next time we'll talk about a computer program that knows how you want to die. At least it can take a really good guess. Until then, I'm Chelsea Wald, and I'm Bob Hershon for AAAS, the Science Society. Back to you, naked scientists. Well, that was a perfect science update for me. Thanks, guys. That was wonderful. All the things from the wonderful oceans that we love so much. But remember, if you want to hear more from the Science Update crew, you can go to their website at www.scienceupdate.com. The Naked Scientist with Chris and Helen. Got an email here from Graham Hackney, who says,、uh, "I'm a Yankee, but、I、still love your show. I was wondering why it feels so good to stretch muscles. Actually, I don't. I don't think I know the answer to that. Why do we enjoy? I, I love stretching. Why do、It's、we enjoy? It's a really some- good question. I've never thought about it, to be honest. And I'm actually went to the gym yesterday, and I've got very stiff arms, so I'm busy stretching, and it hurts, but it feels good at the same time. I don't know. I know that's because I work too hard, and、uh, yeah. yeah, and I didn't. Well, it's the first time in a long time. Trust me, that I've been.、Um, so I know I don't know. Good question. The stretch receptors of something. We'll to, I think we should ask our audience. Do you know?、Yeah. Can you help us? Why? Why does stretching feel so good? Has anyone got any theories? I mean, obviously you can say, well, it's a good way of priming the body, making sure everything's going to move when the way you expect it will when you need to react quickly or something. But don't know. No. Okay. okay. Good. Any ideas? Let us any know. Any ideas? Chris at NakedScientist.com. Got one. I probably can do. This is from Stephen. He says, "Dear Naked Scientist, your show is great. I listen to it in Washington D.C. Got a, a quick question for you. Should coffee be stored in the freezer?" 
Do you keep your coffee in the freezer? Uh, no, but apparently you should. I have friends who claim you have to have beans, they have to be in the freezer, grind them immediately um, on defrosting them, and that's the best way to have coffee. But why that is, I guess it's the aromas that are the volatile, and they'll just all evaporate off if you keep them in, in air and they haven't frozen them. So Yeah, so the warmer it is, the warmer it is, the faster the chemicals mm. evaporate from the coffee, and therefore the less good it's going to taste, so the cooler it is, then the longer it's going to hang on I to those so. flavours. Yep, perfect. Keep your coffee in the fridge. <laughs> On the way, we'll be talking in just a second to Jenny Goodman from Oxford University and then Graham Taylor, also from Oxford, about the science of flight. And if you have any questions for them, 08459 25 2000. You can email me, chris at nakedscientist.com or text in 07786 201960. Connor's got a quick question. He's in Tillingham. Hello, Connor. Oh, hello. Welcome to the Naked Scientist. Hello, fine. Oh, yes, um, could I ask, um, uranium waste, mm. um, could that not be remixed with uranium-238 and then put back into the mines? where it was taken from, a storage. Well, I think there are a number of problems here. Um, one of the problems is actually making sure that when you put the stuff in the ground, you don't build a bomb by accident, which is in the sense that this stuff is of a reasonably highly active state, and so if you actually put lots of it together, you can get reactions propagating, so you'd have to store it carefully for a start. The second thing is, is a mine necessarily the best geological place to put something which could potentially have major health implications. If that stuff gets into water and it gets into people, then it can have major implications for people's health and the health of the environment. So you have to be very careful where you store it. So if you've dug a massive great hole to get stuff out of the ground, it may not necessarily be the best place to put it back because that may not be the most stable geological site. And that's why scientists have actually not made a decision really anywhere in the world yet about how to make the best repository. There is one site which is over in America and uh, they've begun to spend I think they've spent five billion US dollars on building this massive great repository so far but I don't think anything's actually in it yet um, we had Ian Farnan on the programme about a couple of months ago talking about how we actually lock away radioactive waste but certainly people are putting a lot of thought into this because obviously you don't want to make this decision wrong because that stuff stays radioactive in some cases for 250,000 years so wherever you put it has got to remain stable for 250,000 years and that means stable from a geological sense but also not getting water washing away some of the radioactivity so I think putting it back in a mine might be dodgy to be honest Connor if you want my honest opinion Oh, I better not do it then. <laughs> well, one person wrote to me the other day and said, shouldn't we just chuck all our radioactive waste in the nearest volcano? Because then it would just get sucked back into the core of the Earth, which has got loads of uranium anyway. Wouldn't that solve the problem? And then someone pointed out on our forum, which is nakedscientist.com slash forum, that if, if you actually did that and then the volcano erupted, would you not then end up with radioactive waste all over the world? Which, of course, you could do, which is why they don't do that. Right. Thank you very much for that. That's all right. Do you want to quick go to the quiz? Uh, yes, please. All right, then. The universe is about 13 billion years old. Is that science fact or science fiction? Uh, fact. Yes, that's right. And the reason we know is there's residual heat coming out of the universe's oldest stars, which are called white dwarfs. And they think it's about 12.8 billion years, but we might have to give or take a billion either side. <laughs> well done. One out of one so far. Copper sulphate crystals are a green colour. Connor, is that fact or fiction? Uh, fact. Afraid not. They're actually more blue um, when they oh, have right. water in them and white if you dry them out at high temperature, but they're not green. Oh, right. Good to have Sorry. you on the programme and thanks right. for having Bye. a go. See you Bye. later. Bye. If you've got any questions for us, 08459 25 2000, email chris at nakedscientist.com or text in 07786 201960. On the way, of course, we're talking about the science of flight and if you want to have a go at our teaser, which is 
What did the Montgolfier brothers invent? If you can get that right, you could win yourself a remote-controlled aeroplane donated by the Science Museum. Laying the facts bare, the naked scientists. Just quickly, an update on this week's teaser question, which is proving hugely popular. Thank you to everyone who's called in. And I have to say, you're all getting quite along the right lines, but anyone else who thinks you have an idea to the answer of the question, what did the Montgolfier brothers invent, then give us a call now and try and beat the rest of them out of the hat. So 08459 25 2000, text messages on 07786201960, or email chris at nakedscientist.com. But like I say, we're getting people out there who seem to know what they're talking about. Good going. Oh, including we have Raymond in Soham. You've yeah, definitely along the right lines. Thanks for that. Pat in Sondham and Keith in Peterborough. You're all definitely tuned in to what the Montgolfier brothers were on about. So if anyone else has any ideas, let us know. Now, we're very pleased to welcome to the programme this week Jenny Goodman, who's a researcher at Oxford University and works on hopefully getting us all to the other side of the planet much more quickly. Hi, Jenny. Hello there. So tell us about your research. Okay, uh, what I work on is uh, something called the Sustained Hypersonic Flight Experiment. It has a rather unfortunate acronym of SHIFE. Um, but what <laughs> Which it... could be mistaken. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's uh, being done by a company called Kinetic. And the aim of the thing is to build something called a ramjet engine, which is a special kind of jet engine. And this thing is going to fly on a rocket up to four times the speed of sound. It's then going to launch itself and accelerate up to six times the speed of sound. Now, that's two to three times the speed of Concorde. A couple and of thousand kilometres. Well, it's yeah. two kilometres a second, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, that's right. And um, then it's going to fly along at max six, six times the speed of sound, for 100 seconds uh, before running out of fuel and crashing to the ground. But 100 seconds, max six, ramjet, very exciting, never been done before. How does it actually work? And why does it need to be launched off a rocket? Why can't it just take off? Okay, so a ramjet engine is like, it works just the same as a jet engine that you get on your standard jumbo jet. Um, So what happens is it has to suck in air and it needs to compress it. So it increases the pressure before it gets to the combustion chamber. You then squirt in some fuel, you combust that fuel, and then you exhaust it out of a nozzle. So you get really high speed air coming out the back, which creates a forward motion. of the engine. Now, a ramjet engine isn't like a jet engine because what happens is instead of having that big spinning set of blades you get at the front of a jet engine, in a ramjet engine um, you can um, carefully shape the intake so that it does all the compression through something called the ram effect and that's why it's called a ramjet. Okay, so you compress your air without this enormous lump of metal spinning at the front so it's much lighter. Fantastic. Must be quieter as well I should think. Uh, It's not necessarily quieter because you've got all that air coming out the back, so it still makes a bit, a bit of a noise. Um, uh, but the trouble with the thing is that to be able to get that ram effect to work, you need to be flying fast, OK, because you need to create something called shock waves in the intake, and that means that you need to be flying at least more than Mach 2, really, for them to work effectively. In our case, our ramjet is only going to work a 4 to 6, Mach 4 to 6. Um, so in that case, we have to get it there, first of all, with a rocket. So how is this different from what rockets already do? Okay, well, the thing with a rocket is that it has to carry its fuel and its oxygen on board, whereas a ramjet engine, it sucks in the oxygen in the form of air from the atmosphere. So you've reduced a lot of weight because you don't have to carry all that oxygen around with you. And once it, once it actually gets going, 
I mean, how how I mean, how far are we away from actually seeing this being able to be plugged onto an aeroplane? Because one could see how you would apply this would be you'd need something that would go pretty fast to get it up to that threshold speed, and then these things could kick in and obviously take you much, much faster. OK, well, we've actually already got it on a, um, an aeroplane. The Blackbird SR-71 actually has a turbo ramjet engine. Um, so it uses a normal jet engine to get it up to around Mach 1, Mach 1.5, and then it changes into a ramjet engine. But it only flies at around Mach 2 to 2.5, so our one's going to go faster. Does it use the same fuel as a normal aircraft engine? Um, R1 actually is using diesel, um, or it can also use the same uh, kind of fuel kerosene as we use in a normal Because that's engine. important, because you don't want to have to carry two loads of fuel aloft, do you? No, you wouldn't, yeah. Um, the, uh, if you then go faster still into something that's called a scramjet, which is a supersonic combustion ramjet engine, they tend to use hydrogen because uh, it's got different properties um, to diesel. So what are the major constraints in getting this going now? Uh, one of the major constraints is the fact that once you go that fast, so once you get above Mach 5, we call that hypersonic, once you get up to those kind of hypersonic kind of ranges, um, things get very hot. Okay, So if you can imagine the friction forces just on the outside, inside our combustion chamber we've got 2,400 Kelvin, so that's about 2,200 degrees C. So you're talking about a 1,000 times hotter than your normal room. So things but, but engines hot. run hot anyway, Jenny, don't they? I mean, your average jet engine must be pumping out gases which are 1,000 degrees plus easily. Um, they um, are hot, although they're not as hot as that for sustained periods. The other thing is you want to keep the whole thing light. So your, your standard jet engine or gas turbine engine, um, it's actually cooled with bleed some of the air that goes into it through very complicated passages, and that keeps things like the turbine blades at the back um, cool enough by film cooling and things. Um, we don't want to do anything as complicated at that as that when we're that hot and we're trying to keep the weight down so that's complicated is it surmountable i mean if we can put a probe uh, so that it can slam into the atmosphere of titan saturn's largest moon at 13,000 miles an hour get to 2000 degrees withstand that and then plummet into a minus 200 degree bath of, li- of what well liquid methane surely it's not beyond the realms of possibility we can de- design something that's light enough to do what you need it to do oh of course not i mean that's what we're doing we're going to fly this thing in uh, two years or so's time you we hope. can do it <laughs> <laughs> um, the um we're actually using something called carbon silicon carbide which is um, a really fancy kind of composite material that is actually worth about its weight in gold um, and that can withstand these kind of temperatures pretty much indefinitely it's great stuff but you can see it starts getting very expensive you fly a a probe to titan then you know you can do it once it costs millions billions of pounds you want to fly continually london to sydney you don't want your airfares to be that high no sure now what sort of altitude would these things run at because presumably they would be able to go much much higher if they're using that kind of approach they, they would be going well probably twice the height we fly at, at the moment wouldn't they that's right um r1 is actually going to fly up to thirty thousand meters so 30 kilometers so that is a lot higher than we normally because we're usually at about thirty-two thousand foot i think mm. aren't we it's about the airplanes fly. go along about the height of everest don't they so and um, this would be three times that wouldn't it yeah it would be and i mean that adds additional challenges obviously to when you're uh, designing your plane and things but i would think that at those kind of altitudes because the air is so much thinner there's much less resistance and therefore actually it's quite economical as flying goes is it i guess it is i mean yes it, it you would would you get less drag i'm not sure 
drag is the force that you, is, goes against an aeroplane to stop it going along. I think there's an awful lot of challenges with going high because things like the pressure outside is lower, which means you need to pressurise your aeroplane a lot more, which means it needs to be stronger and it would therefore need to be heavier. Um, so there's a whole load of pros and cons to uh, flying high. How long have people been trying to develop this? Because I remember when I was little, I'm sure I remember about 10 or 15 years ago, people talking about notionally that this technology could be used and they were going, oh, within a couple of years, I'm sure we'll be able to build this. And here we are 15, perhaps even 20 years later. And it's okay. it's taking to the air in a prototype form, but still sounds pretty prototype. Well, ramjets have been around for a very long time. I mean, the aer- I'm, I'm struggling in my history here, but I'm tempted to say around the 1930s or 40s, and we actually had ramjet planes flying. Um, now, the thing is to uh, be able to fly this fast, so we're talking um, hypersonic speeds, um, and to make it reliable and safe, now, that is something that we're still grappling with. I mean, we've only really just got there with subsonic flight, so moving up to supersonic flight and then hypersonic flight. We've had supersonic flight, and let's face it, people weren't prepared to pay. So putting this extra amount of money in to be able to get to these higher flight speeds is a challenge in itself. And my last question for you, Jenny, what would be the sort of sonic boom you'd get from one of these things? Because Concorde upset quite a few people in Surrey if it went a bit too fast and they all got these sonic boom effects. Will will this do the same thing? And Are we going to get a noisy future if we have this plumbed into aeroplanes? You will still get a sonic boom as far as I'm aware um, because um, at some point you will have to create that shockwave as you go over people. Um, I believe these days um, it, like if they created a new supersonic a Concorde 2 they can actually make the sonic boom a lot less by the way they shape um, the actual aeroplane so probably um, you by the time you're taking off over people, you probably won't be going at Mach 5 anyway. Hopefully so you've not. just got a Concorde, <laughs> and we can actually do that better now. So actually, it's probably going to be better for people than Concorde. Fancy listening to the naked scientists in your bed, <laughs> on your way to work, or even at work? Mm-hmm. Why not subscribe to our podcast? For more information, visit nakedscientist.com forward slash podcast. Tis the Naked Scientist with Dr Chris, that's me, and Dr Helen Scales. And now time to talk to Graham Taylor, another Oxford University guru on the science of fly. Hi, Graham. Welcome to the Naked Scientist. Thank you for coming in. Hi there. Now, you actually take a slightly slower, a more sedate approach to flight than Jenny does, not, not travelling at Mach 6, obviously. But how do you study the science of flight? Yeah, nothing close to Mach 6, but perhaps not sedate when you look at it close up. If you've ever looked at, say, the way that a pair of um, dragonflies are dogfighting over a pond or perhaps the way that a hoverfly hangs in a woodland in a shaft of light, then you must have wondered how it is that they're able to control themselves so well. Um, And that's what I'm interested in understanding, how they're both so manoeuvrable and so stable at the same time. Sounds easy when you listen to it, but actually how do you manipulate and watch and study a tiny insect to see how it does these amazing things? Their wings are going at 800 times a second, some of them, aren't they? Yeah, that's right, and you've put your finger on the really difficult thing there, which is that they're tiny. So most insects are really very small. In fact, most insects are much smaller than those which you'd be familiar with seeing. And that poses real problems for how you actually go about studying them experimentally. So what we do is to pin them down. Now, the problem with pinning an insect down and then trying to understand how it flies is you need to convince it that it's flying. Um, And so what we've done is to build a virtual reality flight simulator, a bit like the kind of thing you might have sat in at a science exhibition. And we put the insect inside of that, and that allows us to simulate exactly how it would be experiencing things as it flew through the air. In other words, how do you... Well, so you're showing it pictures as though it were flying, and then you're seeing how it 
changes in response to things you show it. Yeah, that's right. I mean, that in itself poses more problems because an insect is, unlike us, able to see all the way around itself. So for a start, you have to immerse it in a sphere which has um, video projection the whole way around it. Um, So that poses problems. And on top of that, flies are also able to see extremely quickly. So whereas you and I sitting in this studio here don't see the fluorescent lights as being a problem, for a fly that was sitting on the wall, it would see them flickering on and off. So we have to project patterns extremely fast as well. So we put the fly in the middle of this large sphere, project around the outside of it, and then it feels to the fly as if it really is flying through a visual environment. And and then how are you monitoring what the fly is doing exactly to work out how it's flying? So the fly itself is mounted on a little balance, which is a little bit like a complicated weighing scale, but it measures the forces and the turning moments, which are the torques, a bit like what you'd apply to a tap to turn that on. So it measures all of those, which tells you how the insect would have been flying if it hadn't been superglued on top of this balance in the first place. And do you then try and work out how its brain is responding, or are you literally just taking a step back and saying, well, how does the whole fly respond to, to visual stimuli? Because obviously understanding the, the nervous system correlates of how it controls flight must be quite important, because I know people are interested in working out how, if insects can do this, can we therefore make a better computer program to control our planes and our artificial flying machines is you know, better? That's right. That's the thing that we're most interested in getting at. So we, we look on both levels, really, at the, the overall black box level where you sort of treat the insect as a black box, which you don't know much about what's in. But on top of that, at the same time as recording the forces that the insect produces, we're also able to monitor what its nerves are doing. So by making recordings from its nerves, we're able to tell what signals are being sent to its brain and how it's using those to control itself. So yes, we're trying to get into that black box. Well, that's insects, but what about the bigger animals? Because do they apply the same principles that an insect does? Is, is a, an eagle soaring around using exactly the same mechanisms as a gnat over a, fl- over a pond? Well, it's almost certainly not using the same mechanisms, but interestingly, we actually know rather less about how birds fly than insects. Um, not quite clear why this should be. They're bigger, which makes them a little bit easier to study. But of course, it does mean that you can't put them into a virtual reality flight simulator. So with the birds, we do something quite different. And what we've done is to make a backpack, which we put on an eagle. His name's Cossack because he's a steppe eagle, so he comes from that part (laughs) of the world. And he flies around over the cliffs in Denmark. Actually, he's coming over to Wales shortly. And as he's soaring over the cliffs or hilltops, what we're able to do with this backpack is to put a couple of miniature video cameras on, which monitor where he's looking, what his wings are doing, what his tail's doing. And those radio signals back to a little base station where we record this. So we get in-flight video at the same time as having the kind of instrumentation that you would also have on an aircraft. So we know how fast he's accelerating, how quickly he's turning. And when, when you actually do this, does this give you clues as to how birds achieve something, which is, I think, quite an enigma, isn't it? How they manage to fly without having to have a tail fin, because all of the aeroplanes we've ever built have to have one or they don't fly properly. Birds don't have one. That's right. That's for me, is the sort of holy grail of this line of research, is to understand how it is that birds are able to make do without having a vertical tail fin. Now, there are some aircraft which manage to do this. and the Harriers and things, is it? And um, they still have a vertical tail fin, the Harrier, but there, okay. are, there are one or two aircraft that manage it. And there, what you have to do is to have a very complicated control system where the computer flies the plane. So something like the stealth fighter, the, the pilot's almost fooled into believing that he's flying that aircraft, because really it's the computer which is controlling all of the detail. So what are the birds doing? Well, what we're trying to find out is whether they're doing something similar, whether they also are making use of active control as an alternative to having this vertical tail fin. Or another thing which might possibly be going on is that there might be something clever in the way that the tail is shaped, so the sort of twisted triangular tail has some unusual properties. Now, if we can mimic those in an aircraft, you'd be on to something really quite interesting. I can't believe people haven't already. I mean, if you wanted to build a flying machine, surely the logical place to start is to borrow from biology and steal what nature has evolved over millions of years. 
Well, in many ways, that is the logical place to start, and it was the logical place. And so early on in the history of flight, people did look to birds and try to copy some of those mechanisms. So if you look at the Wright Flyer, for example, unlike a modern aircraft, which has flaps on its wings and uses those to control itself, the Wright Flyer had its wings twist and deform in a way that mimicked what um, the Wrights or the buzzards over their house doing. So, yes, that's where people started, but in more recent years, people, for very good reasons, actually, have moved away from copying in a sort of slavish fashion um, how birds fly. So the bottom line sort of summary is at the moment we still don't really know, but we're getting some quite good insights into some of the tricks they use. That's right. Are we any closer to actually building an artificial bird? Well, there are quite a few sort of what are known as ornithopters, which are flapping aircraft, little remote control ones which you can buy. I'm afraid I don't think that's what the prize of today's <laughs> quiz is, but you can get these things on no, the internet not. quite cheaply. <laughs> <laughs> and so, yes, there are one or two of these things around, but as yet they're not really operational in the way that people who want to use them would want them to be. Stripping down science. OK, let's do it. The Naked Scientists. In a second, we'll be finding out about a different kind of flight, which is what happens when you put this bag on your toaster. And uh, hopefully we'll have someone who will tell us whether or not they've done it very, very shortly. That was this week's Kitchen Science. Got a quick email here from uh, Hayley Ragsdale, who says, I've been listening to your show since Christmas when I got an iPod. Uh, Can you tell me about this? My husband and I have been wondering about a phenomenon we've noticed in the winter here in Virginia. When I left a half-full water bottle in the car overnight and it froze, the bottle actually contracted around the ice that formed and got all misshapen and sucked in on one side. Instead of looking like a circle from the top, it had an oval shape. We thought that water expands when it freezes, so why should the water bottle crumple around the ice instead of keeping a uniform circle shape that uh, would be suggested by expansion? What do you think, Helen? I'd say it was the air inside the bottle also contracting, because that's something else that will happen. The air will, air's get, gets bigger if it's warmer and smaller if it gets colder. So not only does the uh, the ice, yes, you're right, the water does expand when it's ice, but I think the air will also shrink down. And if you've got a good seal on your bottle and no more air gets sucked in, I think it would actually it would actually crumple when it got colder. And also the material of the bottle itself might shrink and contract too, which will yeah. pull the, the bottle into a, a, a distorted shape. Good point. Well, I hope that answers that one. George is on the phone. He reckons he's got the answer to kitchen science. Hi, George. Hello, Dr Chris. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. What's the answer to our kitchen science uh, question? Well, hot air is um, lighter than cold. And I think, basically, you're creating a hot air balloon. Very good. Well, shall we find out if you're right? We'll head back to join Ben and Dave and Marco and Tom, who are at the Cambridge Science Festival. We'll find out, and then we'll be back to you. Stay on the line. Right, thank you. Welcome back to Kitchen Science. We're still here with Tom and Marco and Dave. We've got our toaster set up with our safety card around it and the plastic bag on top, and we're about to switch it on and see what's going to happen. So Tom thinks it's going to get hot. Marco thinks that the bag is going to melt all over the toaster. But what do you think will happen? Well, let's look at Tom. Do you want to come around just push the toaster button down and power it up? Can you tell me what's happening? Nothing much, really. Yeah, nothing's really happening right now. If you feel the top of the bag, you might be able to feel it starting to get warm. Yeah, it's getting warmer, yeah. This takes a couple of minutes, especially if the toaster's cold to start with, because you've got to warm up the toaster, and the toaster's got to warm up the air. Is there anything happening yet? It's starting to expand now. It's starting to get a bit bigger. Yeah, it's getting bigger, inflating. So why would the bag be inflating? Well, when you heat up air, it gets slightly bigger. And when it gets big... Oh, here we go. What's going on now? It's starting to lift off the toaster. It's flying! (laughs) So, Dave, why, why would it be that it would fly? It's one thing for the air to get bigger, but that doesn't explain what actually takes off. Oh, we just have to dodge the bag coming back down again there. When you heat up air, it gets slightly bigger. 
in fact, inside a bin bag full of air, there's about 80 grams, 70 or 80 grams of air in that bin bag, which is a lot heavier than you think air is. How much would you have thought was in that uh, bin bag? 0.001 or something. Air is a lot heavier than you think it is. If you have a metre by metre by metre cube of air, it actually weighs a kilogram. So inside a bin bag, you've maybe got 70, 60, 70 grams of air. Then when you heat it up, that air gets maybe 5 or 10% bigger, and it doesn't all fit in the bag anymore, which means that, that some of it falls out, and, the whole, and you've got less, air, less weight of air in the bag, so the bag gets lighter. And eventually the bag and the air inside it is lighter than the air around it. If you put something lighter than water in water, what happens to it? It floats. Yeah, and so if you put something lighter than air in the air, it floats too, so the bag gently floats up into the sky. Do we use this principle in any real-world applications? Yeah, it's exactly how a normal hot air balloon, it's beautiful ones you see flying around on the sunset, they're exactly the same as this. They heat up the air with big propane burners because they're a bit lighter than a toaster and the cable will get in the way. And they, the air gets lighter till the whole thing is lighting the air around it and it floats and flies away. Well, if that's what you expected to happen, then good for you. If not, then you should listen to more Naked Scientists. That's it for Kitchen Science this week from the Cambridge Science Festival. Thank you again to Tom, Marco and Dave. And it's back to you, Chris. Well, thank you, Ben. And, uh, well, it's the Naked Scientists, and that was uh, probably a good opportunity for us to say, Helen, what is the answer to our teaser? Because that's highly relevant to this, isn't it? That's right. You might have got the hint here. And we've definitely had, I think, possibly the most correct answers I've ever seen for any of our teaser questions this week. So either it's a silly, easy question, which I don't think it is, or everyone wants this remote-controlled aeroplane, um, which sounds pretty cool to me. But no, the, Mon- the Montgolfier brothers, Joseph Michel and Jacques Etienne, were French papermakers who put their papermaking skills to good use in 1783 and invented the world's first hot air balloon. The flight was unmanned, but then a bit later on a couple of, it only lasted 10 minutes and a few months later they did send up a duck a sheep and a rooster apparently which is rather lovely and but I he, think but he would provide some power presumably by fl- tr- trying to flap his wings possibly, the maybe over. the sheep clearly wouldn't help at all but we have put all your names into a hat pulled one out and our winner this week is Martin in Peterborough but thanks so much to everyone else who called in and texted and emailed and with the right answer that was fantastic and George um, you also your interpretation of the kitchen science was spot on so well done Thank you. Now, I understand you also had a very quick question for Jenny. Yes, actually. Uh, it was the Germans who perfected the, the ramjet for the flying bomb over England, over London in the 40s. I mean, it was developed before then, but they perfected it and produced it. Very few working parts, very mechanically efficient. And the person you were talking to from Oxford... They're going to fly so high, would they get enough oxygen for combustion for us? Let's find out. We're very short for time, but uh, would you have enough combustion, uh, oxygen for combustion, Jenny? Uh, yeah, I mean, you're, you're flying pretty fast. You can scoop up quite a lot of air if you're going. So, yeah, it's fine for getting enough air at that height. Um, the German, uh, 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 the, the buzz planes, uh, that's actually a, a pulse jet, I believe, which works in a very similar way to a ramjet, but isn't quite a ramjet, I believe. Okay, thank you very much. Thank you for taking part as well, George. Good to have you on the programme. Got a very, very quick one here for you, if you can, Graham, uh, in about 30 seconds. Helen says, whilst watching swallows in flight in the previous summer, it appears that sometimes they rotate in the air through a a full 360 degrees, wing over wing. Is this an optical illusion or can they really do it? Well, quick answer is it, it might be the case. Most birds don't do that because they actually keep their head horizontal in flight. So if you turn 360 degrees, you end up twisting your head around. The only bird that I know that definitely does this is the raven, but swallows are very manoeuvrable, and I guess it's perfectly possible that they do too. 
Brilliant. Thank you very much. That was Graham Taylor from Oxford University. Also, thank you, Jenny Goodman from Oxford University, who talked about flying at Mach 6. And uh, hopefully it's going to happen soon, but I don't think, unfortunately, soon enough for me to get to Australia soon, quickly enough. It's been great to have your company this week. Thank you very much to producer Petro, to co-presenter Helen, and also, as I said, to our guests, Jenny Goodman and Graham Taylor. Next week, we're going to be exploring the science of heart disease, including what is a heart attack, what's heart failure, and what causes arteries to get furred up in the first place. We'll also be hearing from doctors Neil Campbell and Anthony Mather from the Royal London and St Bartholomew's Hospital about new ways to unblock arteries without having to resort to nasty operations and also how stem cells might be able to rescue hearts damaged by some of these diseases. If you've got any questions on those subjects, then do email them to me, chris at nakedscientist.com, as soon as possible, and we'll try to include them for you in next week's programme. In the meantime, do give the Nature podcast a listen. We make that too. It's on the web at nature.com forward slash nature forward slash podcast. Lots of from the coalface cutting edge science news available there. And our website has recently undergone a complete overhaul, a total facelift, and we think it now works beautifully and looks fab. We'd really like your feedback. So if you have a chance, do drop in at nakedscientist.com and tell us what you think, especially our forum, nakedscientist.com forward slash forum. If you've got a science question, I can guarantee there's some luminary somewhere that will have the answer and can help you out. Thank you for listening once again. And until next time, goodbye. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.